Laugh and the world laughs with you. Snore and you sleep alone. Anthony Burgess. Hey everyone, this is Arun and Jojo and you're listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. If you really want to know what the sound that was playing at the beginning of the episode, you need to stay patient right up until the very end. Before we get started, we want to let you know that you should head over to our Twitter and LinkedIn profiles, both for Arun and for myself, and then also check into the Scraps podcast profile. Go ahead and support us by liking us on your favorite podcast app, if you haven't already done it. And trust me, if my daughter did it, you should do it too. So Jojo, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's been crazy, crazy travel and work and work and travel and fun and work and work is fun. So it's been fun, but in, I feel like we've, we've needed to work a little harder on keeping the podcast going. Well, (laughs) yeah, you've really hit the road since April, haven't you? So, but I'm actually glad that both of us had a chance to meet face-to-face last month at one of the conferences in Minneapolis. And more importantly, before you hit the road again, I'm glad that we have some time to record this episode. So I know that it's normally you asking, what are we talking about today? But for a change, let me ask. What do you think we should talk about today, Jojo? Well, I think um, I think this whole season has been pretty special, and I don't want to interrupt that flow. Uh, it's been a fun journey, and after doing our fully narrative podcast on psychedelics, uh, we got back to our sort of a, a hybrid version of what we've done in the past. Yeah, purely as an experiment. Well, that's what this is, science, right? We should experiment. And I think people seem to kind of like this approach, one where we mix discussion and narration and interviews. Yeah, do you have any favorite ones that people should check out? Any special recommendations from Jojo now? All of them. I, I, I love all my children equally. Ah, uh, spoken like a true mother. <laughs> well, don't tell my kids. I don't know that they would agree with that, but okay. I, th- honest, I think one of my favorites has to be um, the patient pioneers. I, I think that there are so many instances where people get into this field of work and study and research um, for altruistic reasons. And so many people, especially the younger ones, don't get that firsthand experience with the patients themselves. So that's one of my favorites. How about you? Well, I personally love the uh, episode two uh, purely because the fact that uh, a modality Uh, And I think Imran Iba also mentioned it to a certain extent where you actually have a non-invasive modality and the impact of an intermittent theta burst stimulation can actually be so profound. Um, It strikes so many chords with me, uh, both philosophically as well as scientifically. So for me, that one is an absolute favorite of mine. Look, I know you asked for one, but I'm also going to give you another one, which is the a fifth episode titled The Killing. I think the type of soundscapes that we created for that episode is something that took me so much time, but it was the most fulfilling of any episode production that I've done this series. That's, that is a great Everyone one. Everyone I... must check out this season of Scraps and for what it's worth, listen to the episodes in with your headphones on or in a car stereo with no distraction 
to fully understand the production value. And sorry, Jojo, I had to make that pitch. But now, coming back to the episode and reversing the roles, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I kind of had an idea that I really, really wanted to put the screws to you. So it's it's going to be some heavy lifting for you today. Oh, wow. How's that? All right. Well, you're the person who apparently knows everything and anything about bioelectronic medicine off the top of your head. And for some things that you always tout about the field of bioelectronic medicine space, there's room for novel therapies beyond the traditional hammer looking for a nail, brain computer interfaces, et cetera, et cetera. So, here I am to grill you on this topic. Oh, well, um, what can I do apart from just accepting the challenge through this? Oh, let us actually see if I stand up to the inquisition. So, what topic specifically are we going to talk about today? I kind of thought for the next three episodes, we'll take three disease conditions and go soup to nuts on each topic so that everyone can understand the area well, be it a scientist or an engineer or an investor or a patient or a member of the general public. Um, Hopefully there should be something for everyone. Okay, so what specific disease condition are we going to talk about today, Jojo? Okay, so I have one for you. It's something that impacts a huge chunk of the population that people don't even realize they have it. And it's usually somebody else that tells you that you have a problem. It's not alcohol. They tell them that they're loud and they can't sleep. What is it? Well, if anyone has naughty thoughts, please leave them at the door before you go any further. (laughs) This is not that kind of a podcast. For that, you can check out other episodes from other podcasts, and we will throw in a link in the episode description. (laughs) But just kidding. Just kidding. You know, I think you're referring to something less naughty. Like, I mean... (laughs) Let me ask you one more time. What did you have in mind? So, Arun, you have a slightly perverted brain. And I am talking about a disease condition, not a fantasy or a fetish that keeps your partner up all night because of how loud you are. Oh, yes, that one. Yes, that one. (laughs) The one that causes more new onset diabetes, more new onset of hypertension, atrial fibrillation, stroke, and sudden death. And for folks in the bioelectronic medicine field, this has the highest valuation today for a single asset class. So do you want to tell everyone what that is, Jojo? Absolutely. I think it's about time. We're only about 10 minutes into the podcast before I finally tell you that we're talking about sleep apnea. Yes, you and your dirty mind can't believe you changed a science podcast into soft porn. I'll never forgive you for this. (laughs) But by the way, that category does exist too. This is not a paid promotion by any means, but just saying. But jokes aside, I think we want to tell you some important facts. Knowledge about sleep apnea goes back in history to about about the period even before Christ, around 360 BC. And if I just list out some of the names in history who have had sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing, you'd be very surprised. Some of the names include Napoleon Bonaparte, Queen Victoria, Johannes Brahms, Winston Churchill. If you are a fan of Charles Dickens like me, if you've ever read his novel Pickwick Papers, Joe 
one of the supporting characters in the novel, had excessive daytime sleepiness that he fell asleep standing up while knocking on a door. And then, for the longest time in the 19th century, people with sleep disordered breathing in the 19th century were referred to have Pickwickian syndrome as a tribute to Charles Dickens's Pickwick Papers novel. I was startled by just how prevalent sleep apnea is. Globally, its prevalence is roughly 425 million of all adults between the ages of 30 and 69. So just to put that into context, that's roughly 5% of the entire world's adult population. Yeah, and what's worse than that is the fact that most patients don't even know that they have it. And so how do people know that they have it? Well, exactly as how you pointed out, Jojo. The partner who usually sleeps in the same room has a very disturbed sleep due to how loud and noisy the other partner's snore is. So as a result of this, initially, this becomes a frustration when someone is woken up from sleep and it changes to anger at not being able to sleep any further. And then to realize as the disease gets worse, where the awake partner with a disturbed sleep is seeing their partner lying down and having loud snores, extremely loud snores, snorts, and then suddenly their partner stops breathing. And this happens over and over again. I can tell you, I have firsthand experience with this, and it is maddening. And it's, it's hard to watch somebody else sleeping peacefully while you're not sleeping. And so whatever you do, a light tap can, over time, turn into a pretty brutal shove or n- nudge. Yes. So there must be some deep science as to why this happens. And should we talk about that part first? Yeah, if that's what we want to do first, because I think talking about that will help a great deal. Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand why this condition can be such a huge burden. And there's more to it behind just angry, non-sleeping and disturbed sleep for for the sufferer. Well, they're both suffering, trust me. (laughs) Okay, so think about how people breathe in a normal situation. They They take a deep breath in and a breath out. Inspiration or inhalation is an active process, while exhalation is a passive process. Does that mean I'm passive-aggressive? Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) So aside from you calling me passive-aggressive, would you please explain this inhalation-exhalation process? When a person inhales air, they have to recruit many muscles. The muscles of the nose, the oral cavity, the palate, the back of the throat, all contract for the nasal and pharyngeal cavity to dilate to hold more air. When the skeletal muscles of the rib gauge and the diaphragm have to contract in completely different directions to move. In fact, the ribs actually move out almost radially from the center and the diaphragm contracts and it's pushed down And as a result, what happens? This creates a suction-like effect in the chest and that pulls air through the nose and the mouth. 
But imagine for some reason if the negative pressure that is caused by the chest moving out and something that the person can actually control, both the chest cavity and the diaphragm moving down, is met with an obstructed oronasal cavity, then what happens? Sounds to me like that's a recipe for not getting enough air with each breath. Almost like a vacuum expansion of a cavity with nothing actually flowing into the chest. Yes, exactly. So, although it is not as dramatic when it happens the first time, but you can imagine how the body gets conditioned to react when the oronasal passage is obstructed over and over. Although initially it might be obstructed to a very small degree, let's just put a number to it, let's say 20%. And then as the disease gets worse, it gets obstructed to slightly more, around 50%, and then over to 80%. And then over time, with repeated breaths, at a particular breath, a complete closure of the oronasal cavity happens. This slow and sustained obstruction over time builds up carbon dioxide levels in the lungs. So is this why snoring gets worse over period, long periods of time, like days, weeks, and months? Or is this, is this happening in one night session that you're, you're talking about this repetition and, and things getting worse and devolving? So I'm talking about the evolution of the obstructed airway over many days to months and years. Uh, initially, when it actually happens, it's always milder because nobody actually goes from a small obstruction or, or a snore to eventually to a very long and a loud snore. Um, but it always happens over time and especially over months to years. So back to the buildup of the carbon dioxide, and that's because we take oxygen from the air and then exhale carbon dioxide. Exactly. So while this problem slowly starts building up over time, it starts off as one that actually initially blocks inhalation of air into the lungs. But what it's actually causing over time is a carbon dioxide buildup in the lungs. And what does that increased carbon dioxide do? Doesn't sound good. Well, carbon dioxide, interestingly, apart from causing global warming, especially outside the body and in the atmosphere, within the body, it's a very potent molecule that our body senses. So how does that work? For people who actually have studied physiology or most of the medical students would actually really understand that carbon dioxide controls the acid-base balance in the body. Um, and I will explain that a bit more. Our body has some remarkable structures, one in the periphery and one in the brain. And both of them sense carbon dioxide levels in the body. The one in the periphery that I just mentioned is just a single grain of rice size structure that senses many things in the body like pH of the blood, CO2 levels, etc. to just name a few and signals to the brainstem constantly about changes that will impact the body and specifically the blood's acid-base balance. Where is this rice-shaped structure of which you speak? It is bang in the middle of the carotid artery bifurcation in the neck. So if one wants to feel the pulse in the neck, and be careful before you actually do that, 
do not find your pulse in the neck on both sides simultaneously. Why? Is it kind of like me? No rhythm and it's out of sync? No, that's not the reason. The reason for that is because most unskilled people could press hard on both sides trying to feel for the carotid artery pulsations. And compressing the carotid artery on both sides will reduce the blood flow to the brain. So you don't want to be doing that. Oh, so now you just ruined my defense strategy when I go to choke somebody. Sir, officer, I promise I was just trying to feel for a pulse on both sides. But all right, let's come back to that single rice size structure. Yeah, I did say unskilled people, Jojo, so you could almost pass as an unskilled person in the art because you're not a healthcare professional. I know, but we've discussed it. Oh, precedence, precedence. We've discussed it now on tape, which makes that premeditated. So I'm, I'm taking that one off the table. Yes, it does. <laughs> so let's get back to this rice structure. Yes. So this single grain of rice size structure is called as a carotid body. You have one on each side and this signals constantly to the brainstem regarding the carbon dioxide and pH levels, for example. This signaling to the brainstem is mediated via a small nerve which ultimately goes and joins the ninth cranial nerve in the neck. And the electrical information that the carotid body sends to the brainstem appears in form of an increased firing upon detection of a higher carbon dioxide levels. And this tells the brainstem that something is wrong. And since this is a series about bioelectronic medicines, it's perfectly clear that this is all electric. Yep, it definitely is. So what does the brainstem do do in all this? Well, the brainstem is both intelligent and dumb at the same time. So... Yeah, no, um... Hmm... See, I'm tempted to compare this intelligent and dumb at the same time to certain classes of people, but let's maybe back that off and say it's maybe more like most dogs. Well, my wife will tend to disagree and she will actually say that I'm both intelligent and dumb at the same time. <laughs> but <it>. anyway. <laughs> okay, stay on topic, Arun. Brainstem. Yeah, the brainstem, as I said, is sensing all the information that the carotid body is sending in the form of electrical impulses. And it is a fantastic integrator of information. It receives this barrage of electrical activity. This is interpreted by the brainstem, not as an activity that it must perform to reduce the carbon dioxide level directly, but to act impulsively in a completely different way. I identify with impulsivity, but that's not what we're talking about. So. Tell me more about this carbon dioxide reaction. The brainstem in this situation integrates this information that it gets and talks to itself and says, oh, normally it's my kidneys who are supposed to be doing the work to filter out all the bad things from the blood that the body doesn't need. So if the carbon dioxide level is raising, I must do something quickly to neutralize it. So it does two things. It cranks up the signaling down to the heart and the blood vessels to reroute the blood to the brain. Because remember, increased carbon dioxide means that the brain is not getting enough blood, or so the brainstem actually thinks. Then it goes, as a result, into a self-preservation mode. 
and starts dumping more adrenaline into the system. Mm-hmm. I think this is what is referred to as increased sympathetic signaling. Yeah, it is called sympathetic for a reason. So this increased sympathetic signaling that is caused by sensing of a higher carbon dioxide level that is then integrated to the brain stem and as a result is sent to the rest of the body through the many sympathetic nerves increases blood pressure causing hypertension it also changes the way glucose or insulin acts on the various cells and potentially long in the long term could cause diabetes well okay so that's one thing what about the second thing yeah the first thing that i've just told you about is more like an instantaneous reaction like when someone whacks you on the head in this case i'm equating obstruction to the airway and an increase in carbon dioxide build up as that whack on the head then your immediate reaction is to slap that person back so the sympathetic signaling increase is much like newton's third law on steroids where the response is conditioned to a greater level every time the obstruction happens and the carbon dioxide level increases and the second thing that i'm about to tell you is a little bit slow but if the carbon dioxide levels keep rising over multiple days even within a single day due to multiple episodes of obstruction and the person who has this obstruction is getting worse and worse over time and when this gets worse it leads to more carbon dioxide accumulation in the body Yeah, I know it takes me a long time to not feel breathless when I run all four flights of stairs to my apartment when the phone's ringing. Yeah, exactly. The oxygen and the carbon dioxide balance and its equilibration happens very slowly. And this is where the kidneys get normally involved. But imagine if the obstruction happens with every breath and this doesn't allow time for equilibration because the rate of breathing is much faster. And this increase CO2 levels as a result starts impacting the brainstem sensor over time. And this causes the brain to say stop breathing. What? Really? Yeah, it's almost like a vicious cycle. The person literally stops breathing and when no breathing happens and enough negative pressure from the ribs moving out and the diaphragm moving down somehow drives to activate respiration. The patients who stop breathing will wake up with a gasp and go back to sleep again. But over time and over years when the obstruction gets worse, this drive to breathe from the brain stem is also impacted negatively. That's one of the reasons why patients can actually not breathe for a longer and longer time as the disease gets worse. So essentially a loud snore is nothing but an obstructed airway which in some cases can lead to further obstruction and cause cessation of breathing. And that's why it's called an apnea. And as it happens during sleep it's called sleep apnea. And there are two kinds, obstructive and central sleep apnea. And today we'll only speak extensively of obstructive sleep apnea. The reason for that is because the total commercial opportunity is much bigger in obstructive sleep apnea than central sleep apnea. But having said that, it's not as if the impact of what the central sleep apnea causes in patients is any less. We're not going to completely ignore central sleep apnea either. 
we're just going to address it to a much smaller degree. Obstructive sleep apnea, as the name suggests, is due to a mechanical obstruction to the airflow. But central sleep apnea is caused by central respiratory activation gone awry. Remember just a few minutes ago, we said, we said that the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the body creates a vicious cycle that leads brain and the brainstem to not send any signals down to the chest to activate breathing. This carbon dioxide accumulation leads to a shutdown of respiratory centers and this precipitates more apnea in patients. That's what we said, right? But imagine if this buildup of CO2 in the brain is not due to a mechanical obstruction to the airway, but more due to the heart's inability to pump blood, as it frequently happens with heart failure. The heart cannot keep up with the demands of the body, sometimes even baseline demands. So in the most severe cases of heart failure, as it happens in elderly patients or patients who have severe heart failure due to other reasons, even under resting conditions, the buildup of CO2 leads to the brain shutting down breathing and the way it actually happens was described by two physiologists and the phenomenon is called as chain-stokes breathing. In patients with severe heart failure, who experience this type of a phenomenon, the chain-stokes breathing, the airway is not obstructed, but the brainstem fires less and less to activate breathing. So the breathing starts off as normal, but keeps waning down breath after breath before completely stopping. So one can differentiate central versus obstructive sleep apnea by various tests that people will perform by monitoring pressure and airway in the mouth as it might happen in a sleep study using polysomnography. And we'll come to that in just a bit. A notable person in history who had central sleep apnea and died as a result of that was Joseph Stalin. Okay, but I have a basic question. Why does it happen in sleep and not while a person Well, Jojo, awake? think about it. When someone is awake... It is voluntary. So you can control the inspiration or the inhalation of air and the expiration or the exhalation of air. But when a person goes to sleep, they are fully under involuntary control and the muscles of the body go limp. So the chances of muscles prolapsing and causing an obstruction is higher. What we haven't mentioned yet is the reason for the obstruction of the airway that causes sleep apnea. Remember I said that the patient muscles of the oronasal cavity has a lower muscle tone when asleep so that the muscles of the upper airway can prolapse or fall back. The entire airway can just relax completely. The tongue only prolapses in a certain percentage of patients and tongue as a result of gravity tends to uh, collapse back into the airway at the back of the throat. But most patients as we know today are obese, might actually have a bigger neck size. And as a result of that, there's too much water in the interstitial space between their muscle. And as a result of that, due to gravity, the entire weight of the fluid in the neck can actually compress on the airway and that can narrow the opening. So that is the reason when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, 
the obstruction can come from either the tongue or from the other 20-odd muscle groups that forms part of the upper airway, which is part of the nasal and the oral cavity. Okay, so I, I have another question here. The old wives' tale is that snoring is caused by things like weight gain and your tongue sort of getting in the way of the back of your throat. How true is any of that? All of that is very true. So snoring is mostly nasal obstruction. And that's why most of the things when people actually have sinusitis, when they have other forms of inflammatory kind of disease, etc., of the nose and the nasal mucosa, actually the snoring gets really worse. Even compared to people who normally snore to a certain extent, their snoring increases in intensity when they actually have an infection. And the tongue prolapsing is actually part of what actually happens at the back of the throat. So therefore, remember both the nose and the mouth is connected. So the air goes through both the nose and the mouth when people are sleeping, because most people, let's face it, tend to have their mouth open. They breathe both through their nose and the mouth, but ultimately both of them converge at the back of the throat. Mouth breathers. And that's where the obstruction happens because when you're lying down, the tongue, every other part of the muscle in the upper airway is attached to each other, except for the tongue. And the tongue is the one that can actually prolapse freely because it is under the influence of gravity. So it is true that the tongue can actually prolapse. Yeah, it is an independent little bugger, isn't it? But then I've also heard um, and experienced that um, snoring can get worse if the sleeper is in a really deep sleep and or just exhausted at the end of a really long, you know, long, tough day. Does exhaustion and, and deep sleep affect it too? Yes, both of them do affect. Um, let's take the first one. Exhaustion is you're much more under involuntary control. So therefore, you are completely asleep and you might have heard of people saying sleep stages. So you might be in a really deep sleep, at which point of time your body is entirely limp. The muscles of the body is very loose. And, and remember, I told you that the muscles of the airway actually has to contract to dilate. So it basically has to, is to almost kind of, it's a circular pathway, right? So it actually has to contract to open the airway, but everything is relaxed you actually have a much smaller lumen, as they call it, for the air to pass through. So that's what causes the obstruction. With alcohol, it's very similar to exhaustion, uh, as an example. So that's why if somebody is diagnosed with sleep apnea, they will actually be saying, you need to not have too much alcohol or reduce your alcohol intake to a certain extent, because all of that will actually impact um, your snoring, your obstruction, as well as eventually to how worse it can get when you're really asleep. Great. That's awesome for the explanation. Thank you. And as we normally do, we rely on more than just Arun's skillful scientific explanations. So we're going to include an excerpt here from a lecture that Dr. Kingman Stroll, he's one of the preeminent sleep physicians in the U.S., as he describes a patient's sleep apnea with a video running in the background. So if I started here, you'll hear background noise. He's looking like he's trying to take a breath. And now he's breathing. One. One breath. Only takes one breath and goes right into the next apnea. Now, while it looks like he's trying to breathe, he's making efforts against a closed airway. His mouth is kind of working hard, but there is no airflow. 
and these efforts get larger until he breaks it with a resuscitative snore, one, two, and then obstructed breath. He actually stops breathing here for a minute or for a few seconds and then starts up again. And this particular cycle of obstructive apneas, rescue breaths and snorts, and re-entering into another apnea is the hallmark of obstructive sleep apnea and sleep apnea syndrome. So how many times can a patient stop breathing, say in an hour or a minute, and how do we diagnose them? That's a great question. A person with obstructive sleep apnea, like with any disease condition, is graded as mild, moderate, severe, so that the physicians can actually identify the severity of the disease and treat them. And the grading is based on the number of apneas or the time that they stop breathing. And this is counted. So the cessation of breathing or the pauses in the breath or the half breaths or the snorts or the gasps are all calculated by a healthcare professional who is skilled at performing these sleep tests when they are watching a person undergo a test called as polysomnography, where they measure multiple parameters like airflow, pressures of the air moving in and out, pressures of the oral cavity and the pharyngeal cavity before and after the obstruction, while also looking at the video of the person sleeping so that they can clearly grade the episodes that are happening. And the total count of these complete and incomplete obstructive episodes You mean breaths, pauses, or lack of breaths, right? Correct. So these patients can actually stop breathing for anywhere up to 30 to 60 times in an hour. The total count of these episodes is expressed as a value called AHI. AHI refers to the apnea-hypopnea index. And this number is used along with the blood saturation levels that is also measured in the study as an indicator of how severe the CO2 accumulation is in the body to provide an index of severity of the disease. All right, so the next question, and I think it's logical, you can check me on that. For a problem this severe, where it affects so many people, and it can be really scary for a person to stop breathing for several seconds and multiple times in an hour during one's sleep session, pharmaceutical therapies must have tried to attack this, right? There must be something out there over the counter, prescription. What do they have? What is a problem in sleep apnea? It is the fact that patients actually stop breathing. So you need a stimulant to make the person to start breathing again. And most respiratory stimulants, as we know of, wakes up the patient. So really, if you're trying to treat sleep apnea and make the quality of sleep better, if you're making a drug that is stimulating the brainstem to wake up the patient, you're not really treating sleep apnea And that's why pharmaceutical therapies have not been available for this condition. So I think you're telling me that the pharmaceutical solution is basically doing speed to keep you from sleeping, which stops the sleep apnea because you're not sleeping because you're on speed. Yeah, what I'm trying to tell you is that there is no pharmaceutical therapies for obstructive sleep apnea. The reason for that is because when you're trying to develop a drug for obstructive sleep apnea, You need to ensure that you're stimulating respiration without waking up the patient. And there is no drug that has ever been developed to 
to relieve an obstruction while continuing to provide sleep to the patient. Makes perfect sense. But then back to this obesity issue. In in a person who has a thicker neck, and I think you said it or I've read it somewhere that it's usually over somewhere around 60 centimeters in circumference. That patient, these obstructions are more common in those patients and that sleep apnea is only, it's not only common in people who are obese. Is that, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's, that's entirely true. I can see where the thought of obesity being associated with obstructive sleep apnea came from. In fact, it was made famous by Charles Dickens in his Pickwick Papers, but the real scientific and the clinical evidence came from a London physician called his WH Broadbent, who provided one of the early scientific descriptions of obstructive sleep apnea, characterizing it as we described as a failure of inspiration to overcome the resistance in the pharynx with audible signs of snoring and periods of perfect silence with ineffectual chest movements. And he was the one who actually called it Pickwickian syndrome. And another physician called Bickelman reported that patients actually have alveolar hypoventilation associated with obesity. So this means that patients had lower blood oxygen saturations and as a result presented with signs of bluish discoloration of their skin and mucous membranes. Uh, While obesity or increased BMI is a major risk factor for developing obstructive sleep apnea, there is emerging evidence to show that it is not just entirely an obese uh, patient who is at a risk of developing OSA or obstructive sleep apnea, but also the shape of the neck and the anatomy of the neck that predisposes people to obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah, because I have heard some skinny people saw logs. So pharmaceuticals obviously have a huge hurdle to overcome and they haven't done it yet. And so what does that leave as a treatment for patients? Asking for a friend. So since the problem in obstructive sleep apnea is one of a mechanical obstruction to the airway, where in some patients it might be the tongue, in some patients it might be the entire rest of the airway, it must be treated with a mechanical solution. And obstructive sleep apnea is a respiratory issue and blood oxygen levels, as I said, goes down due to a reduction in normal breathing. So the solution and the most widespread solution is a type of a pneumatic splint. So now that we've all been through COVID, I think most people will be aware of continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP or even BiPAP devices. The principle is all one and the same. It acts as a pneumatic splint for the airway to keep it open. Got it. And these CPAP and BiPAP devices blow air at positive pressure and force the air to act as a fluid splint to keep the airway open. These CPAP devices work as long as the patients use it. You will see that older patients tend to use it more frequently and these devices and their businesses are a big market. Like for example, there are companies like Philips and ResMed which actually make CPAP devices and they thrive and the bulk of their business is on making and marketing the CPAP devices because they get reimbursed year on year because the patients have to change their CPAP devices. So I know reimbursement, especially in bioelectronic medicine, is a big issue. That's something that everybody wrestles with. 
What does reimbursement look like for a device like a CPAP machine or for, for makers of, of these devices? Yeah. The continuous positive airway pressure devices or CPAP devices are relatively well reimbursed. They are, in fact, the first-line treatments for obstructive sleep apnea. It works as well it does when it's used, though. So why, what do you mean when it's used? Why would you say that? It seems like if you have a solution... Well, the CPAP devices, as I told you, inherently blows air at positive pressure. So by nature... So by nature, when you're forcing air at positive pressure, they tend to dry out the oronasal mucosal layer. This can be very uncomfortable for the patient upon chronic use. Second, as I said, the more older the patient is, the more compliant they are. But OSA is not just a geriatric disease. It is seen more in the younger population, more in, in more fitter population, especially, as far as I know, a remarkable number of NFL athletes, as an example, have obstructive sleep apnea. So if you have someone who travels a lot or is of a younger age group, who is much more mobile, who doesn't have a good sleeping pattern, having a device that has to be plugged in all the time through the night, and you got to be connected to the device through these tubes that come to your nose, and having a positive air being pushed into your nose and your mouth can all be a bit problematic. So patients tend to use it less and less. So the average compliance rate for CPAP is between 40 and 60%. And I'm not coming up with this number. This is from a review that was commissioned by the American Association of Sleep Medicine. And the numbers that is found in the US is also very similar to what is found in the other countries. That actually, I've, I've done some other research in this area and that 40 to 60% actually sounds high. And, and here's kind of one of the tricky things that I, I know that they looked at to determine um, compliance for CPAP users is they get the machine and they maybe turn it on, maybe use it a couple of times. But the indicator for how often they're using it is actually how frequently they reorder the cleaning product that are also reimbursed for the machines and the tubing and all of that. Have you have you heard anything about that part? I mean, it's it that's a that's a pretty good use. It's like if you're not cleaning your machine, it's because you're not using it. Yeah, that that is very true. That is that is absolutely true. And the and the reason for that is because when you're blowing air, the air actually condenses in the tubing, so which means you get mold and you need to clean the the tubing or change the tubing, etc. Um, but remember that these CPAP devices. Yeah. So. You stop snoring, but you get an infection. Yeah, and, and airway infections are not usually that great, and you don't feel that well if you, if you do have them. Which probably leads to more snoring, right? Yes. So I think for coming to reimbursement, the point that you raised before, I think the guideline for reimbursement in the U.S., at least, and U.S. and Europe, um, is the fact that patients will actually have to use the CPAP device for at least four hours at the bare minimum for them to be provided with the next CPAP device because these CPAP devices tend to have a monitor for everyday use and for how long they are being used on a given night. So this provides the information for the payer to actually monitor how much these... Welcome to the 21st century. Yeah, and th this provides the information back to the payer for how much these devices are being used and if they are used any less, these devices will not be provided or reimbursed for by the insurance company. 
And I'm guessing we have a, a third factorial in, uh, in compliance of use, and that would be the sleep partner, if there is one. Because my understanding is that these machines can be a little bit loud, not just for the sleeper, but for the partner too. Yeah, that's... Is that true? That's very true. Uh, because these devices, to be honest, they've actually gotten quieter over the years, but it is still generating a certain amount of decibel noise. And when you're sleeping, and if you're very disturbed by the tick of the clock or some of the sounds around you, just having a CPAP device and the constant hum is going to be a problem specifically for the partner. So that is also another reason why partners of patients with sleep apnea might actually tend to sleep in a different room purely because they don't want to affect the sleep quality for the person, but also the partner wants to remove themselves from the same room while they're asleep. So it makes for not so great marital relationship. Not to mention that the Darth Vader mask and the breathing and hum of the machine isn't exactly sexy. So as a hypothetical, again, asking for a friend, what does a patient journey look like? Let's say we've established through a sleep partner that a sleeper has possibly OSA or, or, or sleep apnea in general. How do, how do you go about diagnosing it? What's the process? Usually when a, when a person is actually referred to a physician, the physician will usually check for what is referred to in the field as a stop-bang criteria. So stop refers to snores. The patient will be tired as a result of not sleeping well. O stands for observed apneas, most commonly by a partner or via a study. P stands for pressure, which in this case refers to hypertension. And that's a stop. And in the bang, it refers to B for BMI greater than 35. You do an assessment of the age, whether it's a pediatric population or an adult population and what the age of the patient really is. N refers to the size of the neck and G refers to the gender. Each specific letter of the acronym has an associated risk with it. So based on this, a score is assigned. And if it's a case of a mechanical obstruction in a pediatric population, like, say, an enlarged tonsils, which usually is a cause for obstructive sleep apnea in children, they would perform a tonsillectomy. And in those children, this procedure will usually take care of relieving the obstructive sleep apnea symptoms. But in the case of an adult population, after examining and ensuring that the person is snoring, is tired the next morning, has a certain degree of reduction in cognitive function the next morning, has observed apneas by the partner, potentially has hypertension, also is obese and is has a thicker neck and potentially is of a male gender. They will usually prescribe CPAP as we just discussed as the first line of therapy. After CPAP, and patients will usually be monitored for compliance to CPAP, which we did discuss, is anywhere between 40 to 60% at best. If the patient is not compliant on CPAP, they actually have two options, most commonly. The first one is surgery. And this is usually only done in a very small subgroup of patients by ENT surgeons who will usually go ahead and change the shape of the palate. Remember I told you that in some patients it could be an anatomical kind of obstruction because of how narrow the the oral cavity could actually be. 
they actually perform a very invasive and also uh, what seems like a very painful procedure when I say the name. They actually perform a procedure called as HPP, which is referred to as hypopharyngeal ovuloplasty. So they basically literally split your palate into half and then they restitch it to make the, the lumen of the cavity bigger than what it was before. So as you can imagine, that is a very invasive and also something that is not done widely. The next option is usually another non-invasive modality, which is referred to as a dental or a denture devices. Patients will usually have a submandibular device and that is usually provided to patients, much like how a denture device is actually worn. And this again is very painful because it literally can be adjusted with screws to push the lower jaw out so that the obstruction is actually very less. While I did tell you about CPAP devices that the compliance rate is around 40 to 60% at best, but in patients who actually comply, the efficacy can be as high as up to 95 to 100%. But with submandibular devices, it is a device that you actually get fixed by a doctor and you probably have to put that in before you go to sleep. All the patients are compliant because they are wearing it for the whole night. But the efficacy of it is almost close to 50%. So really, it's a toss of a coin. So what I'm trying to tell you as a result of that is if you get diagnosed with sleep apnea and if you don't use CPAP, well, then you have a big problem. And that's where neuromodulation or bioelectronic medicines come to the party. I knew you weren't going to leave us hanging without, you weren't going to have us go through this whole discussion of a massive population of people that can't be helped by drugs, aren't candidates for um, surgery. Nobody wants to wear a, a denture guard at night. And then additionally, you're impacting a sleep partner. So there has to be something that you're holding in your back pocket. And I know you're going to tell us a lot about some of the companies that are looking at this because it's a huge market. It's relatively not well addressed in, in what is out there in terms of options. And I, I, I smell opportunity. Yeah, there is a huge, huge opportunity. And as you said before, Jojo, I think the, the up, treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is the most valued asset in the field of bioelectronic medicines even bigger than deep brain stimulation or spinal cord stimulation in terms of market cap. But let's actually talk about what exactly this option is. As I told you, obstruction to the airway can actually be a result of, of, the, of the tongue, which is the most independent muscle group, prolapsing back into the airway. And this tongue or the tongue is actually innervated by nerves. And this is what helps you to move your tongue when you speak, when you eat, etc. So therefore, stimulating the nerve to the tongue can actually be very beneficial in moving the tongue out of the way such that air can enter and the symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea can be reduced. So that's what the hypoglossal nerve stimulation companies do. Is, is, that, the only, is that the only nerve target for a bioelectronic medicine approach to OSA? The answer is, at this point of time, they are the ones that are commercially approved. In fact, there is one device that is commercially approved, but the upper airway 
which is a combination of the oropharyngeal cavity uh, or the nasooropharyngeal cavity, which includes the nose as well as to the to the to the back of the throat as well as the pharynx, the lower throat, is composed of twenty different muscle groups on either side. Uh, so there are great many nerve target options that could be available because hypoglossal nerve stimulation only impacts 15% of the population. So let's actually take 100 patients. You have 100 patients who are diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. So 40% are compliant with CPAP device. 60% or 60 patients out of 100 are not compliant with CPAP device. So they're looking for new options. Hypoglossal nerve stimulation, at least the one that is approved back in 2014 by a company called as Inspire Medical Systems, that stimulates the hypoglossal nerve. And this only treats, according to the pivotal trial, 15% of the 60 patients, so which is approximately 9 out of the 60 patients. The reason for that is because the Inspire Medical Systems device only stimulates on one side because when they develop the system, they actually, the FDA was very um, cognizant that you have two nerves, one on each side that is innervating the tongue and the tongue doesn't just contract, it also kind of moves in every other direction. So you have to be very specific to that specific branch of the nerve that innervates or causes the protrusion of the tongue. So therefore, the FDA was really cognizant of making sure that the therapy was safe. So they only approved the device as a unilateral stimulation. And this unilateral stimulation device from Inspire Medical uses a stimulation device that is implanted under a dissection by an ENT surgeon. And another lead is actually tunneled to the chest. And the lead that is tunneled to the chest acts as a sensor to see if the patient is breathing or not. So when a patient breathes, the chest moves, so it diagnoses it as a breath. When the patient is actually not breathing, the chest doesn't move, so the sensor actually knows that the patient is not breathing. But interestingly, you don't want to wait until, until the patient stops breathing to stimulate them. So what the hypoglossal nerve stimulation does is it senses the breathing, it, it senses the chest wall moving out, and it stimulates the hypoglossal nerve at the peak of inspiration. And the inspiration is only provided during the, the peak of the inspiration and then the stimulation of the nerve stops because that's when you're drawing in air and that's when you want the tongue to be out. Because when you're forcing the, the air out of the lungs, because it's a passive process, the tongue, the air will automatically come out because the body has those defensive mechanisms to push those air out because it's a passive process and you want to kind of accelerate the, the inhalational process and relieve the obstruction during, during inhalation of air. So that's what the Inspire Medical Systems do. It's a unilateral stimulation, it stimulates at the peak of inspiration, and it has a sensing lead. So I wanna, I wanna step back for a second and first give kudos for the marketing department at Inspire, because it's not just a play on a spark of, of genius and motivation as an in inspiration, but in the actual act of inhaling to inspire and you know that's pretty clever but if they're only treating 15 percent of that original 100 people potentially i mean you could argue that the 40 percent that are compliant with cpap may want something better and could potentially be candidates there 
But if Inspire is only treating 15% of this population, what other companies are going after this target? Yeah. Or this, first, this uh, indication? First of all, I think the field is not without failures. So there, ha- there was a company around the same time that Inspire Medical was developing its therapy called as Apnex Medical. That was also in the Twin Cities area. And it was interesting that both Inspire and Apnex ran their, their early efficacy studies in patient group with all types of, of collapses. So let me explain that further. As I said, the tongue prolapse and the Inspire Medical's device currently, as it was done in the pivotal trial, only works for 15%. And I also did say that the upper airway is composed of more than 20 different muscle groups um, on either side. So when you think about an opening, you can actually have a collapse on in the front and back, which is what the tongue does, because the tongue actually moves forward and backwards. That is called as anteroposterior collapse. There is a collapse that actually happens on the side, which is uh, from left to right, that is called as lateral-lateral collapse. And then there is something called as concentric collapse, which basically is the entire airway kind of blocking as one go. And most patients, and they did a study of drug-induced sleep endoscopy. So one of both Inspire and Apnex actually ran its trials in all patients who were not compliant with CPAP. And what they found was that it was only efficacious in the patients who actually had a tongue prolapse, but not in the other groups. So therefore, Inspire had to rerun its pivotal trials in the specific patient group to get FDA approval. Apnex investors decided that they wouldn't invest in the company and they killed it. So now, coming back to the drug-induced sleep endoscopy studies, so the reason why, and how can you identify that a specific patient is a candidate for Inspire Medical Device? The way it's done in clinical practice is that after you fail CPAP or you don't adhere to CPAP, these patients actually undergo what is called as a sleep endoscopy dice study. Uh, they give you a small amount of medication to put you into sleeps uh, and they insert an endoscopy through your mouth and they literally image what your muscles in the neck are doing when you're falling asleep. And they will actually observe and quantify what type of a collapse the patient actually has, whether it's a anteroposterior collapse, which means they might be a candidate for hypoglossal nerve stimulation, or whether the patient actually has a combination of other muscle groups, which might be the tongue, the palate, the hypopharynx, et cetera, et cetera. And they would grade, the clinician would actually grade them. And the patient actually has anything but the tongue prolapse, which is the remaining 85%, who have a mixture of multiple muscle groups causing the collapse, they wouldn't be a a patient group for hypoglossal nerve stimulation. So therefore, Inspire device currently requires patients to undergo a DICE study to present themselves as candidates for the implant, which means it adds another layer of reimbursement hurdle uh, which means the payers will actually have to shell out another testing before the patients can actually get an Inspire implant. So that was the big hindrance in the early days of Inspire Medical's commercialization. And also there was an issue with the CMS coding, etc. So it's taken a while for them to actually ramp up their commercialization efforts and get to the stage where they are at at this point of time. So that raises a very interesting point and the opportunity as you were, as you were alluding to. 
there is a big opportunity to treat the other patients. And remember I told you that Inspired Device is only unilateral. There are other companies like Imtera, which actually used, um, whose differentiation point was that you didn't have to put a cuff on the distal branch of where the Inspire was putting its device. You can actually put it on the bigger branch and then use this intelligent kind of multi-electrode kind of concentric way of elucidating which branch you would want to stimulate selectively, et cetera, without actually having a sensing lead. Uh, because they felt that they would be able to predict which specific fascicle in the hypoglossal nerve could actually be stimulated to treat it. That company did its um, patient trials in around 30 to 40 patients, if I, am, if I understand it correctly, and was sold to Levanova for close to 250 million. So Levanova is redoing its pivotal trials at this point of time because there were issues with both the IPG as well as the design of the pivotal trials, design of the trials that Imtera actually ran. So they're redoing all of the effort. So even though Imtera's acquisition was five years ago, there is no product on the market at this point of time to compete with Inspire Medical. Then let's come to the second point, which is alluding to what happens to the other forms of collapse, the remaining 85% of the population who still don't have a treatment. Because Inspire's device is actually relatively safe and it's been on the market for such a long time, there are other companies, um, there are many different companies uh, at this point of time. There was even a, a company last week that actually raised 30 million for its Series A financing uh, called 12 Medical, which refers to the hypoglossal nerve as a cranial nerve 12, or NerveX, which is another company that is uh, that was out of UT Dallas. Um, and there, are, and there are other companies which also use cryoablation of the tongue muscles, et cetera, called cryosa. And there are also multiple other companies which also use ultrasound kind of modulation of to titrate the CPAP, et cetera, as well. But purely from a Sinosa. perspective... Yeah, they are called Sonosa. So I think Sonosa is doing that and Nixoa. Correct. So Nixoa is actually going after the 85% population that they inspire according to its pivotal trial, is not able to, was not able to treat by stimulating the hypoglossal nerve on both sides. So, and the reason for that is because they believe that instead of having a, a very invasive surgery to dissect out the nerve and then putting a lead in the chest and putting a hockey puck size IPG, similar to what Inspire is doing, can they actually make the invasiveness of the implant to be smaller? So a, a small incision in the chin to implant the cuff with no battery, nothing, and everything is powered from outside. So the patient in the case, or the product in the case of Nixova, is a small implant, which is wirelessly powered from outside using a little kind of adhesive strip uh, and, and a little kind of pouch that, is, that sticks to the chin. And that would actually stimulate the device. And that particular stimulator or the external actuator of the, of the cuff um, the external actuator of the device can actually be recharged during the day. So that's the treatment that they're going after. And based on some early studies that they have put out, not published, but put out, they've actually shown, apparently, so or at least the claim is that they are efficacious in other patient groups or patients with concentric collapse because 
which is very different from the Inspire's anthroposterior collapse, widening the market group. So this is a reason why they actually, even after the early 20 patient study that they did, called as a better sleep study, they went and uh, IPO'd and the value of the company, despite just around 60 million of investment into the company, has actually reached 800 million in the IPO. Um, all based purely on Inspire's success and them trying to push the boundaries on stimulating the hypoglossal nerve bilaterally and hoping that the tongue would move out of the way and by because everything is attached, it would actually move some of the muscles out. But the jury is still out. It still remains to be seen whether they will be successful in the pivotal studies or not. The studies that I quoted that they have actually claimed in that is not yet published was all done in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and it all has to be peer reviewed. And well, I, I was going to go into, I mean, this all sounds like really good news for snorers and their long suffering sleep partners. And it sounds like if it's inspires valuation is in the multiple billions of dollars range, and you've got other companies like Sonosa using ultrasound and Nixoa and inspire and nerve X, this is a, a massive market size, I think, because of the problems that that are caused by lack of sleep, both for the sufferer and the sleep partner, for the comorbidities that we've covered here. Um, what do you see as as being a potential cap on this market, or where can they all survive? Can they all thrive? They can all survive capturing a subset of the market, targeting the same nerve across the various population. So. Inspire will continue to target its 15%. The, its device will continue to be used for a wider population. Um, the reason for that is because FDA, even though the pivotal trial, trial was done in a narrow population, because the device was safe, FDA granted them a wider label because there was no treatment available. That market or that device numbers that was implanted in the non-anteroposterior collapse, if Nixo was successful, will probably disappear because Nixova will capture that share of the market. There is an even kind of greater problem. Remember I told you that the hypoglossal nerve stimulation purely acts to relieve the obstruction and makes the patient breathe. But there is another aspect of adaptation, a vicious adaptation the brainstem is actually performing, which is driving the patients to act completely stop breathing. That is something, if there was a nerve target that would act to relieve the obstruction and also to provide that additional drive to breathe without waking up the patient using neurostimulation. That would be a great therapy. Um, and there is no um, potentially new information or clinical trials on that area uh, at this point of time. But that would be a huge opportunity. It sounds like, not to be punny, um, but it does sound like an inspirational space to be working in and huge opportunities for bioelectronic medicine. And I think there's one of the worst things in the world is poor sleep because it does affect everything else in your life. And I mean, there's a reason that militaries all around the world look at sleep manipulation as a form of, of questioning. I mean, that's a, that's a tactic that they use to get people to, to talk. So that's how powerful it is. And I'm, I'm glad to see so much focus and attention being placed on, um, on OSA and and um, hopefully it's coming to a theater near me very very quickly. 
But I want to say one more thing about the the type of of patients who are actually being treated uh, or who were treated both in the pivotal trials by both Inspire as well as by Nixova. So the Inspire pivotal trial as well as all of the Nixova's clinical trial is all done in patients who are not as obese, whose obstructive sleep apnea is not so severe. And as a result of that, they are cherry picking the patients or cherry picking the, mi- the moderate patients. And potentially as a result of that, if they show to be safe and efficacious in that patient population, the idea is that they will get a wider label because the device is actually safe and devices can actually be turned off. So therefore, if there is any problem, you can actually monitor the safety aspects of that. That's the biggest pitfall of this area. And most of the market evaluations or market valuations at this point of time and the market cap valuations are all based on the fact, completely ignoring the fact that the existing devices only capture a selective subset within the eligible population, not just in terms of the collapses, but also in terms of severity of the disease. And that's a huge pitfall that very few people are actually talking about. I would okay. So I'm gonna. I know you'll give me an honest answer to this, but isn't that cherry picking actually potentially? I mean, there in my mind, it could be defensible because cherry picking the least severe patients means that you are potentially helping a greater number of people. And I would imagine, and I this is the part I really don't know: is can improvement be made incrementally? So if you have a a moderate case of OSA and you're helped by one of these devices versus somebody with severe OSA who gets one of the newer devices, can they then be downgraded to moderate as opposed to severe? If it's not fully cured, can it be mitigated? And and I would see that as a win for all the populations, especially the sleep partners. It is it it is a bit of a trick. It's it's a bit of a sticky question. The the reason for that is the following. There are patients who have moderate disease, which is a subset of the entire disease population. But most patient groups and most patients with OSA, the bulk of the patient groups actually have higher BMIs, in excess of 35, in excess of 40. If you're going to restrict your pivotal trials to patient subgroups with BMI of less than 32, then you have a problem in ensuring that you can convince a payer or potentially a patient in saying that it's been successful in a BMI of 32. So therefore, we will actually have to put this into you and see if it's going to work, even though your BMI is 41 or 42 or whatever, right? Or your disease is actually more severe than what it is. I think this is exactly what Imran was actually talking about in the last episode when he said companies should not just focus on generating the data that is required for approval, but it should also be high quality, high impact data that ultimately warrants expansion of the markets. At this point of time, I don't see that happening. I might sound like I can actually criticize anybody uh, in this field, but that's not the point. The point is that we actually need to move the the patient population in a clinical trial for obstructive sleep apnea from not just focusing on the narrow window, but also running additional trials to focus on on more severe populations, more obese patients, etc., because that's where the bulk of the patient population is. I, I don't disagree with it, but if you can help one segment, and and with with uh, 
Inspire only hitting 15%, one could argue that they've only hit a small percentage. But their valuation is based on 85%. The patients is still meaningful to so many people. Absolutely. Then their valuation should be entirely based yeah. on no, I, what I, they can actually impact. Yeah. It is basically 15% of the eligible population, but their valuation of 6.5 billion cap is based on 100% of all eligible patients that they can treat. And Nixoa's IPO is based, is piggybacking on, on, on Inspire's kind of data. Uh, it's all a bit kind of, I, I find it a bit funny. And this is a area not just of, their uh, IPO, but their coding. Uncoding, exactly. Yeah, yeah and it's not coding. just the IPO valuation, it's the coding and the reimbursement pathways. Correct. Inspire really did lay the groundwork for a lot of these other companies to follow on. Correct. So not just, not just the dollar amounts, but. Hey, more power to him. The more people that get a better night's sleep, maybe the less road rage, the less, <laughs> you know, poorly written emails, the less cranky people in the world. I'm all for it. So that was the gist on obstructive sleep apnea. But if you want to understand a bit more, as we promised initially at the beginning of the episode about central sleep apnea, I just want to take you back to the thinking that when the carbon dioxide level accumulates in a normal person's blood, the brainstem activates the breathing through firing nerve impulses in a nerve that innervates the diaphragm called as phrenic nerve. And this protective cycle goes awry in a patient with central sleep apnea. A company called as Respicardia, founded by an incubator called Coridia, developed a device which could stimulate the phrenic nerve, the nerve that innervates the diaphragm, through one of the veins that lies very close to the phrenic nerve. And a lead implanted in this vein could pace the diaphragm by activating the phrenic nerve. If you need a bit more information, we interviewed Howard Levin, the founder of this company, in our second season of the podcast. And you can go and check it out in the archive. We'll post a link to that episode in the episode description. Respicardia, the company that developed a treatment for central sleep apnea targeting the phrenic nerve, completed its pivotal trial and was acquired by Zoll Medical for an undisclosed amount. This device is now FDA approved. So now we are going to leave you with something fun. After an episode full of information, amazing amount of facts and also information pertaining to emerging treatments of both central and obstructive sleep apnea. If you're sat there wondering that if the only way to treat sleep apnea is by stimulating nerves, because we said that the pharmaceutical treatments are non-existent, I have a surprise for you. I want to take you back to that sound of an instrument that started this episode. This instrument is the oldest wind instrument ever known to man. It's called didgeridoo. And it is produced, it was identified by the Aboriginal people of Australia and we have them to thank. The Aboriginal people of Australia observed that the eucalyptus plants when attacked by termites was made hollow in its core and this left a central cavity. Sometimes these central cavities would actually be blocked. So they would cut parts of the plant, it, which ended up giving a long tube. 
and used fire to drive out any remaining termites and played music with them. What is remarkable is the manner in which you played the instrument with a wide bore is by practicing a pattern of breathing called a circular breathing. And guess what? This type of breathing exercises your airway muscles and just like how lifting dumbbells in the gym causes someone to be ripped, it ensures that the upper airway muscles are toned as a result of learning circular breathing and to play the didgeridoo. So some people, even today, learn to play the didgeridoo and it has been shown that playing didgeridoo reduces the severity of sleep apnea. Making these instruments, however, at scale and learning to play them would mean destroying nature or messing with nature to create these instruments. So nerve stimulation remains a viable option for ones who do not have the time to learn to play didgeridoo. We leave you with the sound of the didgeridoo and how the overtones and the undertones can be modulated with various patterns of breathing. Finally, we like to thank our sponsors Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical because without their help, we wouldn't be able to pay for the production costs. Jojo and I, however, come free because we do this in our spare time. Mr. Swaminathan Tirinyanasamandam was our sound engineer and sound designer. And that's it from us here at Scraps. As we promised, we're leaving you with the sound of the didgeridoo.